You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. for that. I've tried this before and it sounded okay, but I ended up not being too crazy about what happened because I was driving in the car and not really able to pay attention to you guys like I want to. But this time I think I can. I'm on the highway. I'm not making a lot of turns. I think it's safe. And uh, also I think by doing this, I will take my mind off the fact that I just saw a crazy ass Mad Max Fury Road. I don't think driving around after that movie is a particularly good idea because it's completely batshit insane and it makes me want to nail spikes and flamethrowers to my car and drive through a desert. Uh, it was it was pretty amazing and this isn't normally how I start these shows off. Normally I would welcome you to the Needless Things podcast. Oh look, I just did that. You know what else I normally do? I also say you can find the Needless Things podcast on iTunes and on Stitcher, and of course at needlessthingssite.com and at esopodcast.com because we are a proud part of the ESO network. Uh, if you go to Needless Things to check us out, you can stream the show there, and you can also five days a week check out articles about toys, movies, music, all manner of pop culture dorkery uh, from myself and from my staff of Needless Things Irregulars. So, I just saw Mad Max Fury Road. I want to talk about it a little bit before we get into today's show. Uh, It was crazy. Uh, You would expect it to be crazy. I mean, if you've seen the first three movies, then you know. Uh, George Miller is a genius. He's insane. He's out of his damn mind. But the visuals, the scale, the speed, and, and the fury of this movie are just amazing. It delivered in every possible way. If I have one sticking point, it's that you could have taken Tom Hardy out of it and it wouldn't have made a bit of difference. And I'm, you know, I'm not necessarily saying anything bad about Tom Hardy because the role of Max uh, for three movies and, and essentially for 30 years or so, it's been Mel Gibson just because it has. You know, he did the three movies, and then we haven't had anything since then. So, you know, if somebody maybe five years after Thunderdome had stepped into Max's torn-up, dirty leather boots, it might be a different story. But he's been Max for that amount of time, you know, even if we haven't had movies in the interim. And Tom Hardy, as much as I like him... I loved him in Bronson. Uh, I've dug him in pretty much everything. I mean, I as much as I don't like The Dark Knight Rises, I thought he was a really good Bane. But uh, he 
he's not really present in this movie. He's just sort of... He's there. He's not a catalyst for anything. We do get a little bit of his journey and that he does have to make decisions. But really, this is Charlize Theron's movie, which is no bad thing because her character, Furiosa, is awesome. I was very pleased with how that played out. I loved... Uh, you know, I don't want to get into details because this isn't a review and this is going up. I mean, essentially, this movie came out today when you guys are... Uh, or when this podcast is posting. So I don't want to spoil anything. But I'm very, very happy with the plot. I am beyond happy with the speed, with the explosions, with the amazing scenery. All of the visuals are just incredible. This is... It's, you know, and first of all, don't, don't be mistaken. This is not any kind of remake or reboot or anything like that. Think of this like you think of, like, the James Bond movies, in that this is just another dude, and the story is continuing, and we don't really know where it takes place, or when, or, or it doesn't, none of that matters. It, there's no placing it in the continuity of the existing movies, and I'm not saying there wasn't an intention to, but it just doesn't matter. You don't need to. It's this dude, and he's having another shitty day, uh, and that's good enough for me. But I highly recommend you go see it. If you have a tolerance for 3D, I would say go see it in 3D. I wish that I had. Uh, it was kind of an oversight on my part that I didn't. Uh, and, and you guys, lately, if you've been reading the site, you know I've been kind of poo-pooing the whole 3D thing. Because more often than not, it's just an annoying distraction. It's very rarely an effective enhancement of the narrative, which is what I think 3D should be. I don't think it should be, oh, he just poked a harpoon out of the screen at me, or, you know, oh, that wheel came flying out. I don't think it should be that. I mean, it can, you know, that can be part of it, but I think it should enhance the overall movie experience, and most of the time, it's just, well, why is that thing 3D and that other stuff isn't, and is that supposed to be 3D, and what, it, it should just provide more depth. And uh, a lot of times it doesn't do that. So this one, I have a feeling, would be a hell of an experience in 3D. I, I might even make the effort to go see it again in 3D. Uh, but one way or another, I'm definitely going to see it again because I've got to take Mrs. Troublemaker to see it because she's, I think, really going to enjoy it. But you guys, go see Mad Max Fury Road. It's, it's pretty fucking phenomenal. Now it's time to talk about today's show. This is the panel that was recorded live at Joe Lanta all, two months ago. Almost two months ago? No, exactly two months ago. So it's it's been a while coming, but like I've been saying recently, there's been a lot of stuff that's time-sensitive and I needed to get up. And this one, while it's fun and while it occurred at Joe Lanta, it wasn't necessarily important for, for me to put it up proximal to Joe Lanta. So uh, here it is now. It's me and it's Ricky Zero, who is awesome and who did an amazing job of helping me out with this thing. Uh, we, we really had a good time. The audience there had a good time. And it was just you know, really, it, it was a different kind of Needless Things toy panel. I liked it. I think it could have been tighter. Uh, and as you listen to it, maybe you'll think that, or maybe I shouldn't have said anything and you wouldn't notice. But I try to be honest with you guys. 
uh, but it was just kind of rambling about toys. It didn't have as much focus as, as it might otherwise would have. Uh, we'll get into reasons for that maybe in a future episode, or maybe I've got some words to put down about it. But it, it was a lot of fun, and it was odd because that wasn't my crowd. <laughs> or at least it wasn't my toy crowd. I mean, I, it wasn't my crowd in that I didn't really know a whole lot of people at the show, but for the most part, the Jolanta con-goers... Congoers, that makes it sound like they're in a Congo line, which would have been pretty awesome. But uh, for the most part, those folks are, are older. They are definitely focused on six-scale G.I. Joes, like the original old-school stuff. And they didn't have a whole lot of interest or tolerance for modern toys or even the gimmicky 80s toys that, that I love so much. So it was it was kind of a tough crowd. It was kind of a tough con. And it was interesting. And I think on one hand it was good for me because I, I've been very lucky. Every time I've gone out to entertain people, I have. I, I don't... And, and I, I'm not going to lie. I think I'm good at it. I think I'm a good talker. I think I'm good at feeling out a crowd. So definitely, you know, I have a bit of skill going into it. But I've also been lucky because most of the time... To one degree or another, I've been going into a warm, receptive situation. So this was different. It, it was not that, believe me. Uh, so I'm not. They weren't hostile. They just weren't really that interested in what I was selling, and they didn't know what to make of me. You know, a guy in a mask. Why is he wearing a mask? What's going on with this panel? Uh, you know, the mask. I've been giving the mask a lot of thought lately. Uh, it's. I think it's, as much as it's a gimmick and an attention-getter, I also think it's off-putting to some people and, and maybe a little confusing. I try to be straightforward in my writing and not use, you know, big, giant, fancy words. I don't try to be complicated or, or anything. I try and lay it out, you know, the way it occurs to me in my head. So, you know, I'm, not, I'm no poet. And I think the mask is a bit of artistry that is maybe unnecessary. I don't know. I've got a lot of thinking to do about that. A lot of thinking to do about a lot of things. But that's enough thinking for this opening. Now it's time to think about, oh, that's right, it's time for that musical treat that I like to provide you guys each and every episode. This time around, uh, it's kind of cool because it relates to what we're going to be talking about or relates to what's happening on the show anyway. Ricky Zero, you may know him from the band Radio Cult, who are awesome rockers who play all kinds of different events and all kinds of different styles. I'm One of the things I'm most impressed with, uh, the fact that they're so much fun is great, but the fact that they're so versatile is really great. They know how to play to a crowd because that's what they've chosen to do as a band, and I think that's pretty amazing. But Ricky Zero is also in another band called the Possum Kingdom Ramblers. Oh, that's right. And the Possum Kingdom Ramblers played at Joe Lanta. Now, this is not live from Joe Lanta because I did record a couple of songs that they did, but to be honest, they're not they're not quite the recording is not great. They're great, but my recording of it, not so much maybe. So I'm going to play you something off of their new self-titled album. 
And you can, I'm honestly, I'm not sure where you can find this, but if you go to Facebook and look up Possum Kingdom Ramblers, there's only, there's only one, there's only one band by that name. So you'll find them and uh, you can dig around and, and figure out how to get your hands on this music. But right now here is a track from that CD, which does feature my glorious head on the front cover. Uh, so enjoy. And afterwards, immediately we'll dig right into this Joe Lanta toy panel. I hope you guys enjoy it. Started now. So just know that all of you, this huge auditorium full of people, will be part of a Needless Things podcast about toys. Oh, stop, stop it. Uh, just to get a feel for the room, uh, who here, their first toys were Migos? I need audible. This is for a podcast. Oh. <laughs> they can't see you. You didn't hear me raise my hand. <laughs> so we got a couple of Migos. Uh, what about Star Wars? Uh, and then we get into superpowers. Yeah. And G.I. Joe. Yeah. All right. So we've got a feel. Well, but that is actually the point I'm making. All of those things that I mentioned have one thing in common. Does anybody know what the Migos, Star Wars, Superpowers, G.I. Joe all had in common? There's a common theme. Yes, sir. They all been re-released. 
Mm, no. Made plastic. Action figure plastic. Yeah, that's what it's <laughs> made in Japan. <laughs> what they all have in common, and there are prizes for future questions, just so you guys know. What they all have in common is they're all licensed from various properties, pre-existing things, comic books, cartoons, whatever. In the 80s, it got to the point where they were made in conjunction with cartoons, uh, which was a big change. But before I get too much further... I don't feel like I can stand up here in front of this many people and entertain on my own. I've got a very special co-host that I want to bring up. Ladies and gentlemen, you know him, you love him, from Radio Cult, the rockingest band in the galaxy. Please welcome to the stage, Mr. Ricky Zero. Thank you for coming up here, Ricky. I appreciate it. I know you know your toy stuff. We've had probably about 70 hours of toy conversation that have shamefully not been recorded. <laughs> I, I would probably have Needless Things podcasts for the next three years if uh, we had thought to press a button. Probably so, yeah. So what was your first toy passion? What hooked you in? The I had other toys before Star Wars. But I remember uh, basically learning the meaning of the word covet when I saw my friend's Star Wars figures. Oh, yeah, yeah. So Star Wars was the first uh, obsession. Where you started, and at a young age, none of us, I don't think any of us were seven, eight years old thinking of ourselves as collectors. Because I feel like that, as far as toys go, that's something that maybe came a little bit later. Like you kind of realize... I have some kind of compulsion here. Yeah. I don't know what to call it, but I have to have all of these things. <laughs> and a lot of people go to high school and meet girls and go to college and learn things and get real day jobs and kind of forget about that weird compulsion. <laughs> but I don't think any of us are... Yeah, they're out there. They're not here. They play football. They play football. And uh, they refer to each other as bros. <laughs> um, well, I have to say, my first real girlfriend, uh, I remember when I got my driver's license, the first place I went was a toy store. <laughs> and, and the first like real girlfriend that I had, I remember she and I would go to the toy store together. So, I mean, it, even when a, when a lot of the people who collect G.I. Joes would say, yeah, I got rid of all my G.I. Joes when I discovered girls, I was like, I was pretty much just hanging out with girls that collected shit, too. <laughs> well done, sir, because I did not take that path. Uh, while I never stopped collecting toys, uh, I streamed pretty much straight from Star Wars to G.I. Joe, a little bit of He-Man in there, uh, Ninja Turtles, Batman the Animated Series, the X-Men. I mean, that was the early 90s, or that's probably the point where I graduated high school in 94. So early 90s, or like that's about the time where I should have been saying, maybe it's time to start looking at those balls they throw around on the grass. Uh, and I didn't, but I kept it on the down low. Uh, but I just, I just kept going. Here is, here is my story about the first lady experience, which is not as cool as your story. Uh, this was the eighth grade dance, which was a big deal at the time. And my big date for this lady, I'm taking to the eighth grade dance. We're going to go to TCBY. And I have a great TCBY yogurt story, but sadly for you guys, it's going to have to wait for another day. And then we went to the comic book shop. 
Oh yes, took that young lady in her fancy 8th grade dance dress to the comic book shop. Well done, Phantom. So anyway, I just want to give you a little background on where we're coming from. Um, G.I. Joe was my big, big passion in the 80s. Uh, and Star Wars took you in, but as far as looking at your whole life, what what's your big, if you had to pick one toy line, what would be the one? It would be impossible. I, <laughs> I, I just, I don't think I could do it. I, I really could. Wow. I, I've just gone from one to another and back and forth so many times. Star Wars may have been the first, but uh, there, there were just so many, I, I can't pick one. Well, that's okay, because we're going to talk about a bunch today. Uh, I want to focus on the licensed stuff. That's the point of the panel. And we can go back as far as the really early licensed things like Buck Rogers and the Disney stuff. Uh, that, you know, that was happening long before Star Wars, but I can look around at the relative age and say maybe we should stick to the late 70s and the 80s, uh, because that's when things changed. Right. Massively. One guy Please do. Stan Westwood. He was one of the inventors of G.I. Joe. When they were coming up with the idea for G.I. Joe... The original 12-inch Joe's. Because he was the representative of Gene Roddenberry. And he had, Roddenberry had a show called The Lieutenant. Mm-hmm. Weston was his agent, went to Hasbro, said, let's do a figure based on this, but let's make it posable. The Lieutenant got canceled after one season, but Hasbro ran with the idea. Weston got $100,000 for his contribution started a licensing company and was the licensing rep for Marvel, DC, King Feature Syndicate. Oh, wow. who owned Lone Ranger. And he created Captain Action. And when after Captain Action faded, he was approached by Marty Abrams and licensed all those characters to the Mego line. That sounds like an entire panel. But for your contribution, <laughs> sir... <laughs> motion picture, The Expendables 2. Not in theaters now. That's the first time I've made anything off knowing that. <laughs> well, see, now you'll be even more inclined to share knowledge, because you're like, this last guy that I told something, he gave me a toy. I don't know why. Um, yeah, that's awesome, and honestly, that should be a whole panel next year, because there, that's I had no idea that the original Joes came from being a licensed property. That's very interesting. And, uh, but the other tie in the Vigo was that Marty Abrams was out of the country when George Lucas approached him. So Kenner got the Star Wars license, and that's what really changed the whole ball. Exactly, and that's where we were going next, right. was Star Wars blew everything wide open. There had never been merchandising like it before. And I was just going to say, the first really big pop culture merchandising thing that I can think of is the Beatles. Because the Beatles being a band of real people uh, with a manager with a knack for doing things incorrectly because they'd never been done before, um, managed to sell the licensing for Beatles paraphernalia for a ridiculously low amount. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and to this day, there's probably as much Beatles stuff on the market as anything else because there have been action figures forever. Right. You can't right. go to any kind of pop culture store without seeing mugs and lunchboxes and bobbleheads and statues and, and all manner of other things. That's that's also that's why Ricky Zero is here. 
He fills in the holes that I leave open. Man, I shouldn't have said it like that. <laughs> Let's move on to Star Wars. <laughs> Let's. I think the Beatles responsible for Gene Simmons in life. Oh, very much so. Oh, they, yeah, that yeah, actually absolutely. is. Absolutely. Yeah. But as a side note, Gene Simmons was not the merchandising mastermind that everybody thinks he was. He had no idea that most of the merchandise in the 70s was out until he saw it in the stores. Most people don't realize that. But the biggest merchandising and promotional scheme that Gene Simmons ever pulled off was convincing the world that he had pulled off the KISS merchandising and marketing experience. A bit like Satan, except in reverse. A little bit, He convinced everybody that Gene Simmons existed. That's right. So Star Wars comes along, uh, and I think the magic of Star Wars is that it had, it was the first science fiction thing of its kind that had that universal appeal that the Beatles had. Right, right. Everybody went to the theater to see Star Wars. My parents, uh, they don't get this. They're not these kind of people. Uh, they're they're very friendly and very. How are y'all doing today? It's very nice to see you. Come on in and have some sweet tea. Like they're super delightful people, but they're not nerds at all. But they took me to see A New Hope when I was one year old because it was that big a deal. Uh, everybody, even the the sweet tea crowd, was going to check it out, <laughs> lining up around theaters. It was the first science fiction movie to not just appeal to nerds who like science fiction, right? but to everybody. Exactly. Uh, so big that uh, it was followed by more imitators than we could go into here. And let me just tell you guys, if you asked for it next year at Joe Lanta, I would love to scream Star Crash in one of these auditoriums. If you know Star Crash, you're excited right now. If you don't, you will be. Trust me. You know Star Crash. I don't know Star Crash. Yeah. I'm still excited. This is going to happen. Still Star Carolyn Monroe. Yes, Carolyn Monroe. Uh, but Star Wars toys is... Uh, there, there was nothing like that. Nothing is encompassing because everybody in here knows the ridiculous array of characters that they ended up casting in plastic for this line. People that, as a kid... I didn't know who they were because they'd been on screen for a second. A man a man? What is I I but it didn't matter because it had created this mythology. And the other thing to think about with these Star Wars toys is back then you couldn't sit down and watch Star Wars anytime you wanted. New Hope, right. Empire, or Return of the Jedi. Only after Jedi did VHS really become kind of a feasible publicly consumed thing. So we're buying all of these toys, but we've seen these movies maybe once or twice. You know, it, as, as a seven, eight-year-old kid, you're getting all these toys that you remember who Han Solo is, kind of, but there's still that imagination involved, because you're pretty much making up your own stories with this stuff. Oh, absolutely. So we go... 
from this expansive, I mean, Star Wars, first Star Wars toys were ready to go. They had the uh, early bird kit, which I'm sure everybody knows about the early bird kit, where you you bought the first figures, except you kind of didn't, because you had to wait months for them to arrive. <laughs> yes, exactly. The telescoping lightsaber, where everybody's hand looked like this. So it was really weird. And that was actually a beautiful thing about the early Star Wars figures, was that awkwardness where you you kind of like nothing quite fit right like you'd put a gun in a stormtrooper's hand and it would kind of be this number so you'd have to kind of turn them so they which they've got bad aim anyway haha ha, that's a hecky joke i'm sorry um so star wars laid the foundation for something that i think nobody could have expected and that is the huge change in everything in the 80s because in the 80s, in 1983, Masters of the Universe was the first cartoon that was able to launch an action figure line at the same time as the cartoon. Because there had been legislation in the U.S. government that a cartoon could not have a corresponding action figure line because it was considered advertising to children, which was a big no-no. But Ronald Reagan came into office, capitalism became very popular, still one of my favorite things to this day, and everything changed. Now, what in the 80s, Yes. so much to choose from, uh, is there a toy line that stands out as being the most exemplary of that just wild 80s? cartoon toy crossover excess. It's so hard to say because you have Transformers, which was huge, and you've got the cartoon, which you're mentioning, you've got the toy you're mentioning, but there's also the comic book. Yes. So you've got with Transformers, cartoon, toy, comic book. Also with uh, G.I. Joe, you've got toy, cartoon, comic book. Um, those are two of the big ones, definitely. And Masters of the Universe, you've got the comic books that come with the toy, and the cartoon, so there, and then an occasional sporadic comic books from DC, right? You know, like that right. license jumped around a good bit. And by the time you get to superpowers, you've got the mini comics that come with the figure, the toys, the several different waves of superpowers comic books, and so many TV shows that feature these characters. They're being advertised. Basically, constantly. Well, and plus, you know, not only the superpowers comics that were directly representing the toy line, but then just the original DC comics that they came from in the first place, which is like kind of a snake eating itself. Right. It's like this Ouroboros of toy weirdness. Uh, to me, G.I. Joe, and that was, for me, the big toy line. One, because it was very expansive. I loved the cartoon. More so, I loved the comic book. That comic book and Chris Claremont's X-Men are what started me off as we, and we were talking about this last night, a monthly comic collector. That's, well, Chris Hamer is the same way, which by the way, if you guys haven't visited Chris Hamer out at the Urban Pop table, go by and check out his art. He's fantastic. Uh, if but, you're familiar with the toys that we're talking about, you'll like his art because it lots of references to these characters. All yeah, all pop culture stuff, all very unique. Now I have a question for you. And oh for no, you. what? No, you don't get to do that. Yes, I do. Okay, and uh, I'm making it so. So my question is: um, there there was some kind of law that prevented uh, 
advertising, I believe, for the toys during the cartoon. So you you could have the toys for GI Joe, right? And you could have the cartoon for GI Joe, but you couldn't advertise the toys while the cartoon was playing. Is that correct? I believe that was like a remnant of the legislation before, because that did go away at one that point. Was all that was left. And I right. know yeah. the yeah. way that Hasbro got around that is they advertised the comic books during the show. And they did little cartoons for the comic books, and each comic book would feature the toy that was currently yeah. on the market. Yeah. So it's basically <laughs> was the first comic book advertised on TV. Really, GI Joe was the first yeah. comic book advertised on TV. Uh, they had an animated recreation of the cover of number one. Right. Yes. And what's funny about that is the the GI Joe cartoon is actually very high quality animation for the time, but the animation used in those comic book commercials was actually nicer than. What was on the the cartoon show, right? Because they only had to do basically a minute of it, right? Right. Just give them all the prizes. No, no, no. You've got uh, you know what? You get no more because you're filming and you're putting it up online. You can't put yourself over. Be worried that the the mother fascistly may come back and try to. Ruin all this. Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, it's happening. They've already taken Happy Meals out of or Happy Meals out of California. You can't sell toys with Happy Meals anymore. Yeah, it's crazy pants. Because we're not smart enough to make decisions on our own. But this isn't a political panel. This is a silly toy panel. Ah! Um, and speaking of those toys in the eighties, yeah. So uh, we were very fortunate this weekend to have uh, Larry Hama here, who to me is the father of GI Joe. Uh, to my G.I. Joe, obviously. Real American hero. Real American hero, G.I. Joe, yes. That's a distinction one must make here at Joe Lanta, or one gets beat up in the alley outside after the show. Uh, but Larry Hama is uh, uh, amazing because he created the identities of all of the G.I. Joe characters. He wrote 155 issues of the G.I. Joe comic book in the 80s and continues it today in a comic from IDW that continues the stories from a real American hero. He, But he, to me, is that toy line because the G.I. Joe comic book is G.I. Joe to me. I love the cartoon, don't get me wrong, but the comic book is the canon to me. Even more so than the movies? <laughs> Stop that. No prize for you. <laughs> no, honestly, though, I enjoyed the first movie. Uh, I, I thought it captured the tone of it. It, what, it didn't take itself too seriously. I thought it nailed a lot of things exactly right. Was it a perfect G.I. Joe movie? No. Was it the one I would have made? No. Would anybody have liked the one I made? Probably not. But that's the problem when you're handling a licensed property like that is you have an established fan base and there's no way to make everybody happy. There's not, because everybody has their own G.I. Joe. Like I was just saying, my G.I. Joe is comic book G.I. Joe. Somebody else loves the cartoon. And those two things, while they coexisted at the same time, they are not the same story, they are not the same tone. And if you're adapting those things, you're not going to make two different fans happy. It's just not going to happen, which is why I don't envy the people who make the movies about comics and cartoons and toy lines and whatever else. Uh, Transformers movies, maybe a whole other story. I don't think they made any Transformers fans happy. They made everybody else on the planet happy, <laughs> apparently, because you don't make $400 billion for putting out crap. Well, I guess you do. I was just going to say. Uh, 
So GI Joe was a big deal for me. What, what about you guys? What what is a, a toy line? It doesn't have to be from the eighties. What's a formative toy line from one of you guys? Marvel Legends. Marvel Legends. Really? Now that's great though because once again a licensed property, but interestingly taken directly from the comic books. And uh, for piping in, I have a set of Diamond Select toys, Peter and Self Mini Mates, coming no longer current comic book story. I love Mini Mates. I think they're a fantastic, expansive toy line. And uh, if you buy a bottle of super glue to go with them, then you're really going to enjoy those. Uh, yeah, Marvel Legends, absolutely fantastic line that is thankfully still going on today. Are you still collecting or did you stop? Oh, is this what you've got over here? Nice, nice. It, what, if you're, are you missing any specific thing? Everybody I know that collects Marvel Legends, even completists, yeah, exactly, that you don't have everything. What, what's your big one right now? What are you looking for? I want a Winter Soldier. Oh, now the... Uh, Combo. Okay. So they are you looking for the one that came in the two-pack? Two-pack. Yeah. It, and it's fantastic. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if they reissued it, though. I mean, I as, as big as uh, uh, the next Cap movie, I mean, he's obviously going to be prominent in it, so a new comic Winter Soldier is probably going to happen. Anybody else? Uh, yeah, man. Amy's Ninja Turtles and... Uh, well, let's go. We'll go with Ninja Turtles. Um, and uh, since you chimed in, you get from the DC Signature Collection, Saint Walker, ManyCollector.com exclusive. Uh, I don't really have anything funny to say about that figure. He's Saint Walker. He's a blue guy with a weird phallic head. So anyway. Um, that's your idea of nothing funny to say? <laughs> That's played out. There's nothing funny about that. You know what is funny, though? Is this little Arnold Schwarzenegger commando figure. Who is I, missing his Uzi. Uh, he's missing his, his Uzi, and his but he does, he does have, have his, pistol. his pistol, which uh, there's another gentleman out there that I hope you guys visit before the day is over, and I promise I'll stop talking sometime. Uh, Billy, Billy's Toys, in the back corner of the big room, he provided all of this stuff, which I just like to have things up here for everybody to look at. If there's anything up here that you're like, oh, hey, I remember that thing, we can talk about that thing. But Billy said, don't lose his pistol. In this wide open holster, didn't put him in a bag or anything, and I'm like, Billy, how am I supposed to look at that thing? It's ridiculous. But I want to talk to you guys a little bit before we go any further with Ninja Turtles. We'll come back around to that, but I wanted to hit on a point today. What do you guys think about things like this commando figure that are based on adult properties? Our hard R properties Blue Thunder that are marketed to kids. What do you guys think about our like toy lines? It's ultimately a bad idea. Yeah. And I think Hasbro's finding out now with Marvel. Because the Marvel toys are not selling up expectations. But that's not an R rated franchise. But it's adult you know, it's not aimed at children. Kids will watch the cartoons and they'll get excited about the superheroes and stuff. See but they're not saying, Oh I want the shawarma place in. 
No, well, I don't think Hasbro's just making crappy stuff. That's what. <laughs> yeah. Hasbro is actually with the Marvel Legends, from what I understand, yeah. doing quite well because year, if you saw their Legends slate, oh, the three point seven five inch. I think those have just run their. Oh, the two inch ones, but that's that's not true because I've got a seven year old son and he loves them. Why didn't you buy the Marvel Legends? He doesn't want Marvel Legends because they're a pain. They don't stand up. I've always... The figures that are selling right now are those crappy 12-inch figures. Those shampoo bottles are doing great. And you know what? Good for them for finding a new format. I'm really impressed with Hasbro and with Jax for pursuing those larger scale figures and for knocking it out of the park because kids love those things. And, you know, you can't get too large because if you guys have seen one of the Ninja Turtle ones yeah. that Michelangelo just... I haven't even seen one that isn't broken. Now you're talking about the X-Wing and the Falcon or the figures? The big figures? Well, yeah, and that's the thing is I think once you pass that 18-inch and get up into the 30, it's your collectors that are buying those and stockpiling them somewhere. Oh, no, the Gentle Giant stuff is a whole other story. That's definitely... What was that? Hasbro has a line of 20 and 24-inch Star Wars figures. Yeah. Yeah, and they're they're moving. And they remind me a lot of Shogun Warriors from the 70s, if you yeah. guys remember those. Absolutely. A- as a kid, those were awesome. They had Godzilla that shot its fist. And yeah, which I saw a couple here. That's another one. Yeah, they had some great stuff. I was Jack Pacific did the giant Godzilla last year. Yeah, I've got one of those at home but with the speaker in the chest, but with no electronics. Right. <laughs> what do you guys value? Uh, articulation. Articulation? Well, you're a Marvel Legends guy. I knew your answer. Same for you? What about... Articulation to the point accuracy. Like, I don't like... You got a, a, a real soldier and he's got some stupid looking gun. Right. It doesn't, that's not real or it's not proportionate to him. Unless he's a space guy, then you give him a movie gun, but... I think it varies from line to line for me. Like, it really depends on what I'm collecting. If you're doing something like Ninja Turtles, and it depends on your interests, but, like, for me, with Ninja Turtles, I want them to look like toys. I want them to be fun figures, and I want them to be accurate to the animation or the comic or whatever they're representing. Uh, what was your... When did you get into Turtles? How did you find them? Was it all the cartoon? It was It was probably the cartoon. I was, little. I was probably, like, five or so. That's when it hits, though. Yeah, yeah, no. I remember... Family got in front of one Christmas. I just had, I think at the time, I felt like I had everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this was like, I think everyone just got it uh, for me. I remember the other one I was thinking of was uh, Uncanny X-Men. So. Oh, yeah. Well, and see, that's that was another key line. That was what I was saying earlier that just kept me going yeah. was... We went straight from Ninja Turtles into Batman the Animated Series and then the X-Men stuff from Toy Biz that was all based on the cartoon, which was all based on the Chris Claremont X-Men comics, which was key to my comic book youth. Uh, Ricky, what what other 80s stuff kind of caught your eye? Oh, there was just, there was so much of it. I mean... Obscure lines, not terribly obscure, but like Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, sure. Line, sure. Sectors, Warriors, um, Rock Lords. I know you're familiar with that one. I've got a Rock Lord sitting around here somewhere. <laughs> yeah, Sectors is actually a really good one because they tried to make that happen and it hit the uh, toy stores. 
Yeah. You had the giant Hive Fortress, which is one of the biggest, most amazing playsets I've ever seen. Try finding a cheap one of those. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then you had the puppets, which were designed by a man named Tim Clark, who had worked on the Dark Crystal, who is on the Needless Things podcast just last year. And if you go to needlessthingssite.com, you can listen to my interview with Tim Clark. Thank you for that one, Ricky Zero. No sweat. Um, Where's my five bucks? I'll get it to you later. <laughs> uh, but they had the hand puppet insects and these incredibly, for the time, incredibly scaled and articulated yeah. figures that, yeah. that were just wonderful. Uh, they tried to get a cartoon off the ground. It didn't work. And the toy line died. Because in the 80s, and well, and really even up to now, those things are integral. They made cartoons to sell toys. And if a toy line didn't have a cartoon, it was very rare for it to succeed. And now, if a cartoon doesn't have a toy line, uh, what happens is Young Justice, or Green Lantern Animated Series, or The Batman. Mattel dropped the ball on all of those. Actually, the decision came from inside Warner Brothers Consumer Products. They, 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 did, they didn't okay the toys for Mattel, and then they said, well, they're not selling any toys, go ahead and kill the series. Right. Uh, and Mattel and Cartoon Network took all the heat. Well, Mattel, though, is deserving of their share of the heat because if you look at the Young Justice toy line, very poor decisions were made there. Uh, there was no support for Green Lantern, which is crazy. Well, I'm going to be Yeah, and, and that's the thing is, is now we're in this cycle of reboot after reboot after yeah. reboot where you don't have time for anything to breathe and recover the way you did with Transformers, the way you yeah. did with G.I. Joe. Like now, we're, we're essentially in a five-year reboot cycle now, and it's insane. And the bigger the company, the more immediate return. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that, that's exactly the problem now is as wonderful as I think everything Marvel has or Disney has done with Marvel is Marvel's owned by a big corporation now. DC has been owned by a big corporation for decades now. And it, things often don't have a chance to take hold, which is why we have so many toy lines from the 80s that lasted a year and went away. And talking about TV tie-ins, uh, I'll hold this one up for the camera because I think this is worth a, a look. You see that guy right there? How many of you guys remember Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future? This was one of the boldest televised experiments that anybody had ever done because it wasn't just a show that was about toys. The toys directed interactively Directed interactly? Maybe they interacted. I think it's about time to wrap this thing up. What do you think, Ricky Zero? Maybe they interacted directly. They interacted directly with the television set. You purchased one of the ships, which sadly I don't have a ship here. Uh, Billy didn't have one that was kind of intact enough because they're tough to find now because they're electronic devices. There's a light sensor in the ship that would pick up signals from the television and interact with the TV show. So you'd sit down, and this was a live action for the time, high production value TV show. And if you go back and look at look at it without the gimmickry, it's actually a pretty dark adult story. Yeah. But the ship would interact with the show. So once you got to a certain segment with ships flying around, fighting or whatever in the show, light would come out and uh, the sensor in the toy would detect that light and you'd get damage on the toy, you'd lose points, whatever the case may be. It was ingenious, 
But I think it was, I don't think the technology was reliable enough to keep it going. Because when you're doing something like that, it's got to work. Because the kid gets one. And it was too early in the time of home video. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Because you have to be sitting in front of the TV and the show has to be available. Now, they did make uh, VHS available with the toys. But I think, you know, back then you get one episode on the tape if you're lucky. Right. They had one was just fighting, too. So you yeah. Can, they also had this thing where you put the man on it. And when he changed, your toy would change with it. Yes, yes. The, the, I can't remember what was the conversion chamber or side. Oh, yeah, because he would, he would power, Captain Power would power up yeah. into his armor. And uh, let's see, sir. <laughs> Do you prefer large or extra large? Extra large. Extra large? All right. Hey, you never know. You know what? The slim fit, it's a hot thing with the kids these days. You've got, you got to check and make sure. Extra large, needless things, luchador versus owlbear shirt for you. Enjoy. Um, what what a lot of these 80s tie-ins ended up doing is creating a situation where in the 90s, everything tied in. Yes. I mean, it felt like every toy tied into a comic book, and every comic book tied into a toy, tied into a TV show. Movies had toys and comic books and comic books were now being created just to support a movie or a toy line everywhere and that was a big thing in the 90s and you keep going forward with that to today and what we have are cartoons and comic books and toys that all tie in together that are no longer even geared towards kids at all right you're trying to sell us the kids from the 80s new stuff that's a comic book and a toy and a TV show, and it, in a lot of cases, is working really well. I mean, you're getting smaller shows that are getting toy lines just because it's what the people who watch the shows now expect and are used to buying. Venture Brothers being a great example of sure, a toy that sure. after a show. That that's geared at adults. Exactly. And it's Breaking not... Bad. It's Breaking Bad. That's another one. It's not... <laughs> yeah, that, that brought up a, a ruckus. Yes, Meth dealers in Toys R Us? No, no, they're figures. They're figures, not actual. That's Walmart where the actual meth dealers are setting up labs. But it, it brings us into a, a completely new place. Allegedly. <laughs> if you had told an adult in the 1950s or 60s that, hey, we're going to make this cartoon and this comic book and this toy line that are all going to tie together and be marketed towards adults, they wouldn't have even been able to wrap their head around the concept. No, it would have been absurd. I mean, there was a point crazy. There was a point where television in general was was not taken, well, <laughs> the whole 80s and 90s where it wasn't taken very seriously. <laughs> but um, it, it's, it's the way that things are marketed now is mainly because of Generation X being such a Peter Pan generation. Yeah. We were able to grow up essentially without worry. We didn't have to worry about being shipped off to a war uh, in the same way that the Vietnam generation did or the World War II generation did, we got to grow up in a very comfortable America where now we have this disposable income and, you know, so many of us never really had to grow out of our childhoods because we have this comfortable life that has been protected for so many decades and we get to just have fun. 
We, we don't have the concerns that our parents and our grandparents did. We don't have to worry about going and working 80 hours a week. Uh, it's very different now. So our disposable income is more available than the parents of the 50s, 60s, and even 70s. I'm pretty sure when my father was in his 30s, he never went to a toy show. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can absolutely guarantee you that uh, that, that my dad was get Mark's playsets that were commercialized. Those were pretty good. Yeah. If, if it is an action figure, I, I like those too. Mm-hmm. A lot of fun with all the accessories and the ports. Yeah, they did the untouchables. Untouchables, awesome. Really? Yeah. Wow. Captain Gallant. Those are fun sets. Yeah. yeah, and and actually speaking of the Mark stuff, yeah, that is some amazing early toy technology. It's not really along the lines of what we're talking about here, but I've only recently sort of started, once again, at Billy's Toys, which I highly recommend you visit Billy before you leave here today. Uh, I, For the first time, I saw some of that stuff. I saw a cowboy campsite playset with just this amazing, like, the figure for the time. He's got joints. He's a great figure. All these little accessories. He's got a cook pot, and he's got a spit, and he's got a fire. It's his 50th birthday this year. It's, and and that, uh, that was some amazing stuff. Which, I hope there's cake. Oh, man. Is there? Did you bring cake? I gave you something. <laughs> uh, but to get back to another... I, miss this one because I feel like this was another boom. Obviously not as big as Star Wars culturally, but it was another massive marketing blitz was the Michael Keaton Batman movie. Yes, yes, absolutely. Marketing on that, which uh, again, we've got one of those fellas sitting right here with his movie accurate Batarang belt. (laughs) And it's also most people's mind, they're like, who made that? And it's Toy biz. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Let's compare this Batman to that Green Goblin you've got over there and see how that works out. Uh, but Batman was, there had never been anything on the scale for a one character movie. You had socks and shoes and shirts, action cereal. figures, everything. Yes, Batman cereal, which was actually breaking the mold by being delicious and coming with a big Batman head bank. Uh, but that was, that was another massive thing that got everybody involved. And I'll say, I think since Batman, the only thing, there's Avatar, that I think permeated the public's consciousness in the same way, and I think Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, and not necessarily, not even recognition necessarily, but the way that everybody felt the same about those things. Everybody recognized the the qualities of those movies. They all kind of dropped like bombs in the same way. Oddly enough, Avatar didn't sell toys. Uh, yeah, actually, they made them. They, they made them, sell them, but they didn't sell them. Uh, which it was not. When at the time they came out. They were priced a little high, uh, and they weren't. I don't know about you guys. Do you guys mix lines? Can you mix lines and scales yeah. and styles? Oh. I can't. No. I have to have my three and three quarter inch Joes are over here. My old school three and three quarter inch Star Wars are over here. I can't even mix different kinds of articulation. <laughs> and Avatar wasn't compatible with anything else on the market at the time. The scale was off. They were a different style. It was it was just very, very different. And they were great toys. They were pretty good toys. I'll give you that. Well, uh, I wonder if there was some market confusion just because at the same time, uh, 
Avatar The Last Airbender was blowing up. <laughs> right. So right. That kids, is true. If you have kids and they want Avatar, they want Aang. And uh, I can't remember the other one. But <laughs> And if the parents are like, oh, Avatar, they come home and the kid gets like this blue thing. And you're like, I'm Lots of crying kids. <laughs> and, and it could... It, it could is it the airbender? It could potentially have hurt the last airbender. But I think also... Not, not as much as the movie did, movie. but... I think also... They tried like hell to bury the property. <laughs> well, they sure did bury M. Night Shyamalan for a while. One thing that I think is, is different now than in the 80s is most people I know who have kids that play with toys, they're, are, they're, they are people who have toys. Like, yeah. your kid plays with toys, yeah. but you have toys. Yeah. Yeah. The, the parents I know who don't have toys, their kids are on the computer all day. They play video games, and toys aren't as big of a thing for them. So I think part of keeping toys alive for future generations generations is uh, people who are now adults that like toys passing that on to kids. Yeah, absolutely. probably a good place to start wrapping up this panel. Absolutely. We've got five minutes left. And one one more thing I want to cover uh, to get some input from you guys. You really, when you break it down, you've got toys that are based on existing properties like Wrestlers or superheroes or movies or whatever. And then you've got toys that are just their own thing, like old cowboys or the original G.I. Joes. How do you guys feel about the way that kids interact with those things? I, I know as a kid I dealt with entirely licensed stuff. And I used my imagination. I wasn't necessarily, you know, I had characters built up, but... It wasn't necessarily a matter of having to create identities the way that if you played with the old 12-inch G.I. Joes, you had to come up with, you know, Major Wilson and General General West or whatever. You think it's better to, for the kids to start from scratch? Are okay? Yeah, I mean, your ideas already formatted like the little G.I. Joes. You have a story. Instead of making them your character, you're going to do what, what, what he tells you. I think it's better to make your own character. Yeah. But yeah. That's my opinion. No, that's and that's that's why I brought it up is because a lots of people feel lots of different ways about it. I uh, like I said, I made up my own stories. The the identities gave me a starting point, and I went from there. But but it is interesting. That, that leads into the kids that. They play computers instead of they play with a little guy on the screen. And there, they're not even making a story. Right, they're, they're, the story's written for them. They don't think of their own stories. They're going to be robot parents. <laughs> the parents who love high detail, highly articulated figures, and their kids want Minecraft toys. Right. Yeah. Let's not end on Minecraft. Let's not do that. Uh, I want to thank all of you for showing up. This is a fantastic turnout. Uh, I'm Phantom Troublemaker. Please check me out on NeedlessThingsSite.com as well as the Needless Things podcast where we talk about toys, movies, music, pop culture, all the stuff that everybody's here celebrating this weekend. I want to thank you guys for coming out, talking about toys and action figures for a little while. I've got business cards up here. Uh, if you want come up, grab a business card, check out some of Billy's toys, and uh, thanks so much, Joanna, for having me, and thank you guys for coming out. And thanks to Ricky Zero of a radio call.
Can I tell you guys something? There were ten people in that room, and two of them were me and Ricky. Not the biggest turnout ever for the old Needless Things toy panel, but that's okay because, like I said, stuff like that builds character, and it was a fun time. We had uh, people contributing, well, Randy Panucci of Pop Cult contributing, uh, as well as putting up video. Uh, check out Pop Cult on Facebook, and you can find the video of that, and I'll, I'll link to it in our show notes as well. One thing I want to mention, speaking of conventions, next weekend, which if you're listening to this in a timely manner, as you should be, that will be Memorial Day weekend, which is May the 24th at TimeGate at the Marriott Century Center, the same location as Joe Lanta. We will be recording the 100th episode of Earth Station Who, which is the Doctor Who podcast that I am on along with director Faber, Mike Gordon, and Jennifer Hartshorn of the ESO Network. And TimeGate is a Doctor Who convention. And the big guests this year are Michelle Gomez and Katie Manning. And you can go to TimeGateCon.org for all of the details. But I'll tell you right now, the big feature of the weekend is going to be the ESW recording 100th episode i have something very big in store that you're going to want to see live trust me have i ever let you down i let myself down all the time but you guys have i ever let you guys down no i have not so go to the marriott century center which is the same place joe lanta was held so come on out have a blast enjoy some live earth station who i love you guys this has been a broadcast of the ESO Network, your station for all things geek, classic, current, and beyond. Be part of the crew at esonetwork.com.